Hey everybody, it's Adam Farkas along with Paul Farkas. Hi everyone. Welcome to another edition of ODWire Radio. Today we have a special show for you all about implementing automated vision testing equipment in your office. But before we launch into the talk, we have a very special announcement to make. So Paul, so so drum roll please. Dum 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 dum. This show actually has a sponsor. For once, <laughs> after after going on for almost a year without a sponsor, um, today's show is actually sponsored by Marco, and everybody knows Marco. And it's funny actually. Marco handed me this copy I have here in front in front of me um, to read all about their devices. Go um, for it. So, Paul, I'm going to read this. Here we go. <clears throat> I'll try to be as professional as possible. For more than 40 years, Marco has been a leader in offering eye care professionals the very finest in a complete range of vision diagnostic equipment and groundbreaking automated systems. Together, these offerings help professionals provide the highest quality in care while achieving superior practice efficiency. From lensometers, refractors, and keratometers to chairs and stands, chart protectors, and slit lamps, Marco products redefine state-of-the-art in their product categories. They are designed to make your practice more effective while making the day-to-day work of both practitioner and staff simpler and easier. Marco offers its customers knowledge and experience that can empower every practice to efficiently and profitably thrive. Woo, okay. okay. So that's the official copy. Now let me- Wait, wait, the... you just woke me up. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well. So, let, let me, let, let, so, so Paul, give us the unofficial now, word here, about Marco. So here's, here here's is the real story. The real story. You know, I, Marco isn't the name of an instrument. It's basically <laughs> the name of a family and uh, I, I no, I knew the original Seymour Marco, the founder of the company, many years ago, and his son David Marco took over the company and made it what it is today. Uh, so when you deal with Marco, you're not dealing with just an instrument company. If you go over down to Jacksonville, uh, you're going to see the Marco family, and the Marco family includes not only the Marco name, but also all the people associated and working with the company. So you're not only buying an instrument, you're buying the Marco name and product. Uh, and one thing I'm really proud of is the fact that Marco t- uh, is a supporter of OD Wire. They advertise with us, uh, and they're not afraid of our editorial policy to allow our members to criticize because they know they, their name and their product and their service can stand up to any sort of criticism. So with that said, Ed... Take it over. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. And so today, you know, we're going to be talking all about automated vision testing equipment. So no surprise that Marco wanted to sponsor uh, this particular show. Um, And we're very fortunate today to have Dr. Lou Catania uh, come with us today. So uh, Lou is an internationally acclaimed clinical educator, author, and a recognized expert in corneal disorders, refractive surgery, and most importantly for this talk, new eye care technologies. And he was voted one of the most, uh, 10 most influential optometrists of the 20th century by review of optometry. So we're really happy to have him with us here today. So, so Lou, thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Adam and Paul. Great. So why don't we just launch right into it? So, you know, today's all about uh, implementing automated vision testing equipment. And I guess the, the most basic question is, how can adding and correctly implementing automated vision testing equipment make one's practice more efficient? Uh, let, let me start off, if I may, by ma- making sure that everybody's comfortable with uh, beyond just who I am, uh, you know, what, what my role is. And uh, I, I am an advisor to Marco. I practice in Jacksonville, Florida, and very close to their headquarters, which is based in here. 
And I, you know, our practice does a lot of clinical trials on their on the technologies over the past 10, 15 years. And I am a, uh, a strong advocate of the technologies and to be perfectly forthright uh, to the company too. I think, I think they have been friends of optometry for many, many years and have always stood by our side through everything. And I'm, I'm proud to, uh, you know, to be part of them as a clinical advisor. So uh, that said, in let's, let's chat about, uh, about uh, technologies and refractive technology, needless to say is, uh, you know, is one of the mainstays of optometric practice. And, and frankly, though it's a somewhat sensitive issue in many people's minds, I, I personally think it's currently one of the most inefficient portions of our practices from a time standpoint, from, uh, you know, actually from a, a utilization standpoint of personnel, et cetera. It's, uh, I think it's all because of tradition. Optometric tradition holds very, very, you know, holds this subjective refraction very sacred. And rightly so. It's a it's the, it's the reason why people come to optometrists, and uh, and we should respect the uh, the tradition of optometry. But at the same time, we have to look at uh, new technologies and what they're doing for both the both the refraction itself as well as the business side of what we have to do in, in practices. And uh, and the phoropter is an you know is an ancient piece of the equipment. Uh, you know, can 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 we think of anything more older than you know seventy five years that hasn't changed in technology? The phoropter. Well. And, um, <laughs> you know, you know, Lou. <laughs> I don't want to talk about the sex market, but <laughs> but and, you know, Lou, you mentioned a seventy five year old piece of equipment. I'm sitting next to one right here. <laughs> <laughs> I can assure you, Paul sat next to one forty years ago, and his grandfather said. Listen, I still so, miss uh, the, the pink for optos. Uh, <laughs> the greens and the whole going back. But anyhow, refraction, everybody, everybody in this audience would know refraction is really a two-part process. It's a data gathering process and it's a professional component. And optometry has always been somewhat resistant over the years historically. Again, the tradition about uh, delegating the, the, the data gathering portion. Needless to say, ophthalmology has been very, you know, very uh, comfortable with that for many, many years, and has has re- ophthalmological refractive care been compromised because of it? Frankly, probably so. But now with the new technologies, that's all changing. Functionally, uh, with or without delegation, these new technologies are providing enormous accuracy in refraction, enormous versatility. And not to mention the efficiencies that they allow for the practice. So, you know, from an accuracy standpoint, which perhaps is the most important thing when we're talking about refraction, would be, I would say, equivalent or superior. I mean, it it really depends on the training of the individual, whether it's a delegated technician or whether it's the doctor themselves trained properly on these technologies is going to be the difference between between equivalent uh, data from a traditional refraction or even superior in some cases, which I can get into as we discussed it. But uh, the, you know, the, the, the less variability that we can build into refraction over time, uh, the more, you know, the, the more quality we're going to have for a lot of reasons. I mean, you know, in the current, in the current setting, the multi-doctor practices and things like that, we want, you know, we want consistency in readings. We want to be able to be comfortable with it. Needless to say in, in, places like the military and refractive surgery centers and clinics and things like that, that's essential. 
But uh, we want that. We want that, and that's what technology begins to offer as a front end of, to this whole thing. You know, in, you know, needless to say, interfacing technologies nowadays, you know, is 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 the key. We're, as we move into uh, electronic health record systems, uh, it's going to be the most the most important part of the growth of a practice is our, our ability to integrate, you know, to automate and integrate. And uh, you know, the the information that is captured is going to all be part of a of a, a massive record that uh, that will be that will be transferable. It'll be uh, reproducible. It'll it'll be more efficient in in any in all ways that we look at it and basically uh it'll it'll improve the 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 quality of care and when i say that i don't only mean from a technological standpoint i mean from the doctor caring standpoint the less time that we have to spend collecting data from a patient the more time can be spent with quality time with the patient an interface an interaction whether it be in the form of counseling whether it be in the form of advising uh, this is quality care this is where where technology really lends itself perhaps the most to quality care uh, obviously we're going to be able to improve patient flow we're going to be able to improve patient throughput uh, we're going to be able to do more in other areas like medical eye care. The more time we can save and the efficiencies we can build into one part of a practice, the better it, it'll translate into other parts of the practice that are so important. And you know, to be to be very frank about it, it offers the doctor some additional time to quote unquote market themselves and vision care and vision care products to their patients. You know, speaking so, of doctors and, and staff, uh, one concern I, I'm certain many doctors have is how I'm going to learn how to use all this newfangled gadgetry. Uh, does Marco have any provision to train the doctors? Absolutely. As, as I said, I, that, that's one of the key ingredients to success with this whole process is training, delegation training, uh, I'm sorry, you know, technician training for in for delegation or doctor training directly, and both, I might add, too. And there are a lot of companies out there producing a lot of good quality, uh, good quality technologies. But frankly, and uh, you know, I was, I was going to discuss that as almost a separate point. It's so important is the fact that uh, the training is the key, and notwithstanding the fact that there are many, many, uh, you know provider, you know, technology providers out there, I think what what ODs have to be looking at very seriously is the after, you know, the aftercare, if you would, of the sale, namely the training, namely the reps in the company. Are they, are they well-trained? Are they knowledgeable and at a high level in these technologies so that they can answer questions, troubleshoot, and in fact, have continuous training of the doctors? So, I think that's a that's a critical ingredient, and uh, and and you know again, I with all with respect to all the companies that provide excellent technologies, I have to say that I really think Marco's cadre of rep, of representatives, you know, uh, technical representatives, and their their commitment to training. I mean, they whenever they sell a technology, they they have a training program associated, which uh, people come to Jacksonville. And you know, I'll occasionally be involved, but basically they have a staff of trainers that uh, that train at the technical level and train at the professional level. Uh, so it's a very comprehensive program. And needless to say, I think uh, 
I think it's the the, the critical ingredient in the success of these of these tech, new technologies. So, you know, and I, I was going to mention are there disadvantages to this? I mean, we we could paint this so rosy that uh, that it could become unbelievable. And indeed, disadvantages or challenges include things like change. I mean, change, Paul, I don't have to mention to you what that means in optometry. It's uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> That is the quantum leap is change in optometry, and that's what, that's what we're facing here is a lot of change in the way offices run, office flow, scheduling, you know, scheduling of patients. Uh, also, not to mention a dependency on an area that optometry oftentimes has never been dependent upon seriously, and that's ne- ne- namely their technology folks. I mean, they're, they're technicians and stuff like that. We have to make sure that we have technicians who are stable, who are committed to the practice, who are bright. I mean, we have to, we have to continue to be the ones that bring them to the new levels. So uh, are there challenges? And, you know, some people would perceive them as disadvantages. I would say so, yes. But, uh, but by and large, it's, uh, it's the, the future. Right. So let's say that I'm, I, I overlook the disadvantages. I'm sold on the technology. Now, here's the big question. So I'm an average practitioner. I practice full scope, and I'm ready to start implementing so, some of this technology. Which automated instruments would, would you say are essential to start with? Uh, the, the key to the whole process is the electronic health record. I mean, I think in time, it's a, you know, it's a very intimidating thing, but in time, Everybody is going to have to seriously look at the, the electronic health record within their practice because that's what that's what becomes the hub that becomes the virtual centerpiece of technology in healthcare in eye in an eye care practice. But specifically, Adam, as to what instruments uh, do we do we have to really think about seriously if we if we had to prioritize them? Well, the priorities really reflect on the nature of the practice. If one has a very, very high uh, volume refractive type of practice with a minimal amount of medical eye care, let's say, I think the refractive uh, technologies become the the most important. And uh, this is where, when I talk about refractive technologies, I'm talking about electronic refractors, the the Epic, uh, which is is an entire workstation in itself, uh, or the, what, what, you know, the, the, these are these are brand names. Uh, I'm not familiar with all the other brand names, but basically, uh, the ones we use are the Marco and the the alternate to the Epic system is called the TRS, and that is a system which actually goes in a refracting lane on a on a stand, but indeed it is a computerized automated device, and it's a fact of the matter it's it's very similar to the epic but using a refracting lane so uh, so there are you know there are some differences but basically if it's a a strongly refractive oriented practice and when i say refractive i mean routine basic refractions for eyeglasses contact lenses but also including things like refractive surgery and post uh, you know post operative uh, co-management and things like that I think the refractive instrumentation become critical. Now, within that refractive instrumentation is a subset of technology now, which is becoming very strong, and it's a it's a bias of mine, of course, because I've done so much research in the area, and that's wavefront aberometry. 
Wavefront aberrometry is bringing us to entirely new levels of vision science and vision care. And once again, a practice that's really oriented towards refraction and refractive care, I think aberrometry, you know, wavefront is a, is a critical ingredient, both to, to be used in, a, so in conjunction with the electronic refractor, which uh, we call this wavefront optimized refraction now. And I don't want to go into a big technical description of that. Suffice to say, it's a, it's a way of enhancing, and I mentioned earlier, we could actually enhance the quality of a refraction. And this begins to address that, where we actually are using a new level of vision that only aberrometry can approach and, uh, and measure and, and, you know, and analyze is uh, what we call the higher order aberrations. And with that information, we could relate that back to the lower order, you know, the sphere cylinders, uh, and basically coordinate a much more accurate refraction in a number of ways, not to mention uh, pupillometry is involved. When, when you press the button on these technologies anymore, you're not getting one piece of information. You're getting an array of information, which now you can, you can cherry pick uh, the pieces of information you need. Uh, if we all think back to the days of uh, the initial phase of corneal topography, I mean, we were blown away by looking at uh, corneal maps and saying, what, you know, what am I looking at here? And uh, one could easily be you know, intimidated by some of this new technology, aberrometry being an example. You know, the, we hear about these Zernike polynomials and all that stuff. You know, once again, we're getting an enormous amount of information, not all of which we have to use on every patient, but basically pieces of information which are going to build a, more, a higher quality result in, uh, in our care. And now, if the practice were not a strongly oriented refractive practice, a, you know, a, a balanced practice, let's say, with a lot of, you know, with, with more uh, medical eye care, glaucoma management and things like that, then you start getting into some other very serious technologies that have to be considered nowadays, and that would, of course, include uh, ocular coherence tomo tomography, you know, OCT, and you know whatever you know whatever particular uh, brand or uh, product one one is using, it's be, you know it's going to be infinitely better than what we had years ago, and uh, some might be a little more accurate than the others. You know, I mean, some of them go down to eight micron accuracy, some of them go down to fifty micron accuracy, but basically, you know, we're not talking millimeters anymore of accuracy. So uh, OCT in glaucoma management and uh, and and retinal retinal management uh, at large. I mean, with macula and uh, you know the optic nerve layers and all of those kind of things is a critical piece of information. The final thing for probably any practice, I don't care whether you're refractive, whether you're medically oriented, is the photo documentation aspects of practices nowadays. I think photo you know, photo documentation has, you know, along with our ability to to communicate with other practitioners, consultants, uh, and needless to say, just document with our own records. Uh, what's happening in that area, I think, is something that is critical and has to be, you know, measured as a priority in any form of practice. So, uh, so I think, you know, just roughly speaking, and I'm not, you know, I don't go beyond. Uh, a lot of, well, I shouldn't say go beyond, but I, I don't go into a lot of these very, very sophisticated technologies that a lot of optometrists are involved with. But I think as a basis, I think we're talking about, you know, electronic refractors, aberrometers, uh, OCT, and photo documentation. I think those are the key key areas that we have to be seriously looking at. All all engrossed within an electronic health record system in a practice. Right. And so you just mentioned a wide variety of, of additional tests and, and technology. So 
as a clinician who might be a little bit afraid to implement these things, how can all of these extra tests that you now have and these extra tools actually make your practice run more efficiently? Because on the face of it, if I'm someone who's never done this before, it seems like this actually takes more time as opposed to less. Well, you know, potentially, you know, once again, Adam, I, I have to go, I have to fall back on a training. And when we talk about training, I mean, that, that doctor training that we're speaking about, for instance, I mean, let's, let's move away from the technician training and talk about the doctor training. The doctor training by the, you know, by the technology provider is not going to only include technical and clinical information. Perhaps that's going to be a lesser amount of the education, quote unquote, that the doctor receives from the, from the uh, technology company. More so, it's going to be the practice management and business aspects of how to integrate how to integrate these new technologies into the practice. Some of that, and our practice is a good example, I might add, we spent close to $70,000 on a architectural design for a new practice when we were built, you know, this is six years ago when we were putting together our, our new office building. And it was after the fact that we went to Marco and said, take a look at this, see what you think, you know, based on, based on uh, some of the technologies that we're, we've ordered. And they just looked at it and they shook their heads and said, oh my gosh, you know, you, you really are not approaching this right. And they took us through an entirely new, an entirely new, uh, architectural design, you know, with a diagnostic center, you know, spitting off patients into subweight areas and, you know, and, uh, and care. And we did it after the fact, cost us another 40 grand, cost us another 40 grand by the time we were finished in putting this thing together properly. And now it works beautifully because patient flow is the key and office efficiencies. So the doctor has to relearn. There's no getting away from the fact. I mean, obviously, they're going to learn on the hook, too. As they go, they're going to learn how, how their practice operates and how they are. But they need people, you know, experts in, in this area to begin to show them how to integrate this stuff. Because, you know, as you said a moment ago, these are intimidating new, you know, new things. And they, they could wind up taking more time than less time. But properly, you know, properly integrated into into a practice, existing or new, uh, makes all the difference in the world. I mean, we we started off from our old practice. We had one epic, and in the new practice, we're at three now because of the efficiencies that they spin off. And uh, and these are you know these are things that can only be taught by people who who literally make a living figuring out the best ways to do this. And I might not only make a living, but they go around to every practice in the country and, you know, and get feedback and, uh, and understand where the, uh, the soft underbelly of these things are and then make the corrections and introduce them to new practices. So I think that's, that's the key to, uh, to really making it an efficient transition. Yeah. And also I, one thing, I, I'm a great proponent of somebody else doing the work and having a, <laughs> Having a, a well-trained, bright technician doing all the things that optometrists had to do in the past it, it, it is an enormous advantage to, to free up the optometric time to do the things that you can be compensated for by third-party care so that oh, you have the free time uh, to, to do the, the medical part of optometry and not worry about better now or now, better one or two. Paul, to, to his dying day, Irv Borish fought the battle. And I can say that from my heart and from, from my mind because in, in the last uh, 
well, not in the last couple of years, but probably up until 2005, 2006, 2007, we were co-writing articles together in, uh, on exactly this. On, and now, now I'm alone, and I've written some more on it, and I just get lambasted. I'll tell you, you know, it's uh, it's really tough. Um, you know, you want to throw the towel in and, and tell and tell your colleagues, well, you know, you figure it out for yourself eventually. But I can't do that. I, I have to keep I have to keep fighting the fight. And uh, and basically, delegation is such a key ingredient in this whole thing. And we've got to we've got to convince our profession. Now, I mean, not only at the emotional level and at the at the efficiency level and at the practical business level, but we've got to teach them at the political level. There are 22 states in this country that have laws restricting, literally regulations and rules in in our you know and and you know language in our acts that restrict optometrists from delegating. It's it's absolutely ludicrous. We can't we can't let that continue. And uh, we've been fighting uh, that fight for many years now. And you know, well, it's 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 almost emotional at this point with me because I see so many of my colleagues suffering loss in efficiency and when you lose efficiency you're losing ground you're losing you know you're losing revenue you're losing uh, growth and so much of it's happening in this profession because of a uh, because of this resistance of of uh, of delegation i mean we don't teach it well enough in the schools and colleges we certainly don't implement it at the uh, at the at the practical level enough so it's a it's an it's a critical area that we have to keep working on. So, so do you think that the lack of delegation is actually the critical factor that's preventing uh, the rate of adoption from being higher for this you, technology? You know, oh, uh, yes and no, yes and no. I think uh, I think basically the technologies have become so proficient and are so good that basic, you know, that that even a doctor providing, you know, delivering the technology is going to be able to do a more efficient job than doing it in the traditional manual approach. But, uh, but obviously, he or she is taking up their time to do that. And once again, we get back to the, efficiency, the time efficiencies of the doctor and quality of care that doctor could be adding to the patient uh, experience by, uh, by being able to spend more time in counseling than, than in data collection. So, no, I don't think uh, I don't think it's the uh, absolute do all end all to uh, to success with tech, new technologies, but maximizing their efficiency, absolutely, right. absolutely. And, and let's circle back now. You know, you mentioned the EHR is sort of the centerpiece of, of this entire enterprise. Um, what sort of tools are out there to actually integrate a lot of the technology together so it'll actually work properly with whatever EHR you've implemented in your practice? Well, needless to say, there are there are current technologies of integrating technologies available, and there will be ever improving, uh, you know, hardware and software as as we move down the road. You know, just in the past five six years, I've seen an enormous jump in the, the quality and the versatility and the uh, you know the, the degree of uh, of uh, technology that's available at the integrating level. Of, of whatever you know, whatever technology one might be talking about, and the uh, and the electronic health record, uh, but basically, 
I, I think the only comment I can make without going into a big discussion and, you know, and I, I'm by no means an expert on the different, uh, the different systems, the electronic health systems out there, but suffice to say, one thing I would say, and I've said it to practitioners over and over again, is don't ever, don't ever consider an EHR system that is not fully integratable with any and all technologies you might, you might be thinking about. I mean, once you've made up your mind on the technologies, your electronic health record has to accommodate them, has to accommodate them. So, it, I mean, I think that's one of the key things that a practitioner should be should be interrogating uh, these uh, EHR companies on is the interfaceability, if you would, if there's a word, or you know, the the integration capabilities of any system that they're thinking about. You know, and I would almost take that to the point of not only new technologies that they're moving into, but maybe even some existing technologies that they have gotten into already and need to be able to interface them. I mean, there are a lot of, well, you you guys probably know a lot more than I do about this, but there are a lot of technologies which can take a pre-existing, you know, electronic uh interfaces and bring them up to speed with uh, the current. So uh, I think that's the key on the electronic health record is to be able to interface it with everything and anything current and future. Right. And it's interesting that you mentioned that actually on ODWire, one strategy that a lot of folks have taken is they've come onto the site and just asked, you know, has anyone actually integrated this piece of equipment with this particular, particular EHR and how did it turn out for you? Um, because a lot right. of vendors will say whatever you want to hear, but the reality is unless you've actually seen a device talking to an EHR, you don't know if it's going to work. <laughs> right, right, right. And you can't afford, I mean, if, we, if we're all in agreement that the EHR is indeed the, uh, the centerpiece of everything that we're talking about here, then everything has to be able to talk to it, has, has, to, has to be able to integrate with it. Right. And, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, and maybe we could put on, you could put on your little, um, you know, look into your crystal ball. You mentioned earlier about the medical model becoming more important. What do you see going forward 5, 10, 15 years uh, in terms of optometry and the medical model? Do you think it's going to become that much more important in practice? Uh, well, you know, I, I've got to be careful. I've got to be careful how I get into this because uh, I'm, as a, as a veteran of, of the wars for many years, uh, the political wars I speak of, uh, because, you know, I'll use a saying that I've used for so many years, optometry is nothing more than what our, you know, what the legislature defines us as. You know, that, that's a horrible statement to make, but it's true. It's true. And thus we have to have a very, very active, aggressive political, political body in optometry to, uh, to help move us forward in any area, including medical eye care. And uh, with, I have a concern that I did a presentation at the academy a couple of years ago. And uh, yeah, obviously I was preaching to the choir because the people who even showed up. But it was, it was basically, does optometry still have its, the fire in its belly? You know, and I worry about that. I, I worry about the fact that we may not have the, you know, the, the zeal and the emotion that we had 25, 30 years ago when we had to fight the fights uh, for therapeutics, and we've got to keep fighting those fights. I mean, it, there's no less because we continue to be defined by, uh, leg, you know, by our legislation. So from that standpoint, that really dictates what's going to happen to the medical model in optometry going forward. 
And I guess, uh, you know, I, I guess I have to be the optimist and say that, yes, we will continue to move in a positive direction and medical eye care will become a, a more, you know, more uh, integral part of everything we do. And again, it gets back to technology because that's going to, that's going to make it happen. But the bottom line on that whole process is that it may or may not move forward in the fashion that we want to see it. I mean, there are too many variables, not the least of which is what I just said, namely our own, our own uh, profession being able to really fight the fight. But also, I don't have to tell anybody that uh, we are, you know, we are obviously at, at the whim of, uh, you know, of government and third party in so many ways. Now that, that becomes part of the fight, of course, but still we, uh, you know, we have to fight that fight too. And God forbid that they begin to redefine medical eye care and uh, identify more a medical model on the uh, you know, on the, the medical profession side more than the optometric side. We'd have a real you know we'd have a real battle on our hands. Uh, but that, that that said, it doesn't it doesn't stop us from having to continue to think in terms of technology. And uh, and advancing in technologies in all areas. I mean, obviously, refraction being such a uh, you know such a mainstay of optometry, that has to be probably uh, you know close to the top, if not the top of our of our list of priorities. But at the same time, I don't think there should be a person out there managing a glaucoma patient any longer that doesn't uh, you know that doesn't have uh, ocular tomography to to do it with. Uh, and there are, you know, I, I don't, I probably don't think there should be a person out there managing, uh, you know, retinal abnormalities, uh, either co-managing or managing primarily without uh, photo documentation and those kind of capabilities as well. So, uh, so I think the medical model is a part of our future, but only, only weighed against uh, our political, you know, our political in- initiative and our technological uh, sophistication. Yep, you know, just uh, to get back to automated instruments, uh, you, you've said that you've started off with the discussion with tradition, and I, you know, some of the uh, some of the optometrists, the more senior ones, are sort of like the fiddler on the roof uh, uh-huh. with tradition, and they're they're bound. Uh, how do they get comfortable enough to not have to go back and? to question the automated instrument for accuracy. When do they stop that and then go back to, oh, I'll check this out now, better one or two, to make sure my instruments are properly set? Right. Uh, well, I don't know, I don't know if you, you just used the uh, fiddler on the roof analogy or the metaphor because I wrote an article just about six months ago. I don't know if you read it. In, uh, I think it was a review. So, you know, one of the journals. And... And basically, the opening was exactly that, uh, you know, and kind of speaking from the perspective of a, uh, a more traditional optometrist, uh, with all of this uh, this new stuff, I feel as shaky as a fiddler on the roof. And uh, but uh, basically, how does one how does one you know cope with change? And uh, you know that that's a, a real challenge in optometry, as we all know, and they. The best way it's going to happen, at least what I have seen from practitioners over time, is probably 
two areas, and I, and I respect my colleagues for this in a way, that namely that they will not become comfortable with it until they are absolutely assured of its accuracy and, uh, you know, and its comparative uh, value along, you know, beside their, you know, the traditional refraction. And I was a little upset about a year ago, I guess. Yeah, about a year, year and a half ago, upset with the literature base in this area because everything comparing new technologies to, uh, you know, I better, I better refine this discussion to refractive technologies like uh, electronic uh, refractors and stuff like that. Up until, you know, well, about a year, year and a half ago, I looked at the literature. I did an exhaustive search of the literature. I did not find one, one evidence-based scientific study comparing the, the technologies. And uh, I'm sorry, I take that back. There was one out of Georgetown University that kind of looked at a very, very little narrow area of, uh, you know, of cylinder, and uh, and it came out positive. Okay, but. Nothing, nothing to the general accuracy of a refraction, of an overall refraction. So over the past year, I have actually done a, uh, now I didn't do it in my practice because I, I thought that would be prejudicial. So I, I worked with three practices around the country, an East Coast, uh, a Midwest, and a West Coast practice. And each practice did 30 patients and did a you know, and this was under a, a, a double-blind environment and a very carefully structured environment where they did they did a manual refraction, followed immediately, same patient, uh, not knowing you know, not knowing any any differences. Uh, well, I should say not knowing any differences, but the doctor not knowing anything about the uh, the first uh, the electronic refraction, and then the doctor. And then, by the way, I mean, the, the electronic refraction was a delegated refraction, too, I might add. And then the doctor did a manual, a traditional manual refraction. And you know what? The results were, you know, for, now I, I've got to quote this because it's, it's you know, we're, we're, we've submitted it uh, to, a, to a journal. And uh, the, the sphere was about 0 0.08 differential on 180 eyes. The cylinder was about a 0.1 and the axis, and you know, the axis really obviously varied. It was about, I think, about 12 degree vari variance in axis. But that that's because most of the cylinders were not uh, were not major large cylinders. So the accuracy, the equivalent accuracy between, you know, done under an evidence based controlled study, the equivalent accuracy is is equal at very least, and maybe when you start adding aberrometry into this, which we didn't in this study, I might add, but when you add aberrometry in and learn about the higher order and how the higher order is influencing the lower order, then you're into a whole new ball game of in, improved accuracy. But basically, what the practitioner is going to have to be, do is become comfortable with the equivalency, and I think we've. We've now hopefully made a statement at the scientific level on that. And what I've seen from my colleagues is that that's what happens in practices. They make the commitment. They say, okay, you know, I know that we have to move into these technologies. Maybe they're doing it for efficiency purposes and saying, well, you know, I'll, I'll compromise a twelfth of a diopter if I have to. Well, they're not. They're not. It's equivalent or better. It's equivalent or better. So from that standpoint, you know they're going to become comfortable in that. But they've got to—they've got to put their feet in the water first. They've got to get into it. They've got to do it.
you know, and uh, and once they're there, once they're there, then needless to say, then all of the other things start kicking in too. You know, now they could see the patients light up with enthusiasm over new technology. Now they could start seeing the efficiencies of uh, of you know, the time efficiencies that they're gaining from these kind of technologies. Now they can see the added time they could spend with their patient in you know in counseling them or in advising them. You know, and I've always said it, and I, I've seen it, I've experienced it in a couple of practice in Indiana, which does it so well with the, you know, with the computer terminals in their, in their rooms. And, you know, part of this additional time that they spend with the patient that they have now, uh, they spend it showing a lot of the, uh, the things that they would otherwise be advising, talk to the, uh, you know, talk to the optician about this, that, or the other thing. They just put it up on the screen and very quickly say, this is what you need. You know, this is uh, this is an important consideration in your prescription. And that's a, you know, that's a done deal when the doctor tells you, so all of these things make believers. Make so, believers. so basically, however, it still doesn't eliminate professional judgment. Uh, so if any optometrist thinks that the machine is going to be replacing them, <laughs> you still at the end of the day have to look at that particular prescription that's the automated prescription and possibly modify it based on patient need and previous Rx, I assume. I, I hearken back to the, you know, the first few minutes of this discussion, Paul, where I said, Refraction is two parts, delegate, uh, you know, uh, data gathering and professional component. The professional component is the judgment, it's the analysis, it's the interpretation, it's the, uh, it's the final massaging, and you know what I mean by that, of, of that prescription based on the discussion with the patient. Now, if the doctor feels compelled, compelled to go back to that refractor and verify and Again, if they're comfortable with that technician and they've worked with that technician long enough, they're going to be they're going to be comfortable with it, and uh, they're going to they're going to basically uh, be able to do all of the professional components, like you just said, the judgment aspects, all of those things, but at a you know at a much more efficient level, at a much more efficient level, because they, you know. I, I know, I know there's going to be resistance. I know you're going to get feedback, negative feedback, because I always do whenever I write this. But basically, uh, that collection of the data need not necessarily include the doctor directly, but the interpretation and the judgments of that data is what the doctor needs. You know, physicians don't—they don't take the X-rays; they read them. You know, physicians don't—they uh, don't draw the blood; they read it. We shouldn't be collecting refractive data. We should be reading it, analyzing it, making judgments on it. Right. And Lou, we're almost out of time here, but I have I have one more question to ask you and sort of a, a personal question so you can see if you can sort of answer this for me. I actually did research for this interview today. I went to your, your practice's website. I Googled you and, and looked it over. And, you know, you have a, a successful practice. It looks like you have a good mix of associates, some more seasoned, some younger. Um, and yes. as, as you told us, you actually had implemented a lot of this technology into your practice. Um, so as a practitioner who's done this, what have you actually seen personally from, from the technology in terms of your patient base? How has it changed? Have you been able to do more medical? Um, has the way you practice really changed? Has it become more satisfying? Can you just give us a little sense? Because I know on ODYR, people like to sort of get this anecdotal data. Well, number one, uh, you you've uh, you reviewed our practice, so you know that probably it's you know it, it probably immediately you know 
reflects and screams geriatric care. <laughs> and right, so we have a you know we have a much higher demographic of uh, fifty and above patients. But that begins to really create some interesting points because our surgeons, our three surgeons, are all committed to the technologies. And I, I don't only mean you know the the surgical technologies and some of the high end. Uh, you know, preoperative uh, testing technologies and stuff like that. I mean, some of the basic refractive technologies, they really believe in it. They really, really know that I've got to, you know, we've got to understand it. So that creates a wonderful working relationship with optometrists. And when I say optometrists, I don't only mean the optometrists within our practice. I mean, our referral base, our optometric referral base. We took, you know, our, our surgeons talk very, very, at a very high level with, uh, with the referring optometrists about the post-operative care uh, and sometimes even the pre-operative discussions uh, regarding like, uh, you know, multifocal technologies, uh, IOL technologies, and things like that. So, I mean, from that standpoint, it's created a wonderful environment. From the patient standpoint, they see it happening. I was concerned about the geriatric side of it. I thought the geriatric patient would, would be intimidated by it, would be threatened by it. I want to tell you, Adam, they embrace it. They, I mean, if, if you want to talk about a, a wow factor, I think there's more of a wow factor in the, uh, in the senior patient than there is in the younger patient. The younger patient, they almost take new technology for granted, you know, and they haven't sat behind the paraffin for the past 50 years, the same old, you know, the same exact instrument. So they see a new technology and they say, well, you know, it's about time. It's been uh, 10 years since, uh, you know, that he's been using that stupid paraffin. So, uh, so they, you know, they, they take it for granted. But the, the older patient, the senior patient, uh, they, they just say, this is wonderful. This is wonderful. And, and by the way, you know who they're saying this is wonderful to? They're saying it to the technician that's doing the refraction, that's the da- gathering the data. I mean, by the time they reach the doctor, they are so happy to spend that extra time with the doctor versus having this, uh, you know, this instrument between, between the doctor and them. They're face-to-face. I mean, and, uh, you know, we don't have to, you know, we could, we could do the, the – you know, the, the feely touchy stuff, you know, we could, we can make them feel good. We can make them understand that we care about them just by making eye contact and by talking to them about the results more than collecting it on them. And they really appreciate that. And, yep, the, the uh, hand, hand holding can't be overestimated. And that wow factor oh, for seniors, you know, just waking up in the morning and finding you're alive. You say, wow. <laughs> that's, right, that, that, that's the first wow of the day, right? And then the second day you go to Einstein's and you get a discount on the bagels. Oh, boy. <laughs> So, so there's lots of wows every day. <laughs> yeah, but but no, it it really it really is a very a very positive uh, positive influence and perspective on the part of the patients, you know, with the new technologies that that we and and we well we are a pretty high tech practice I, I will say, but I don't even think you got to be at that level uh, to really start showing the patient that you're advancing and. You know, and the one other thing I was going to say earlier to a question that Adam asked, and I'll, you know, I'll close with it, is our profession, you know, particularly the, you know, the, the more, quote, unquote, traditional practitioners in the private settings and things of that nature, they've got to start thinking of what's happening down the street, you know, because if that patient knows that down the street they're giving a, a high-end, you know, bells and whistles refraction, boy, all of a sudden, we're looking at a, you know, we're looking at a gradient here. We're looking at a difference. Now, we know, you know, we know that that difference may not be real, 
but the patient doesn't. And all of a sudden, uh, whether it's that other practice down the street or whether it's that corporate practice down the street that's doing something at, a, at an entirely new, quote-unquote, level, atomic, uh, uh, patients are going to have to uh, start responding to that. And we can't, we can't allow that to happen to our private practitioners. I mean, it, they're fighting too much of a fight already to have to worry about an unfair competitive uh, relationship. So there's one more thing uh, you didn't mention that every older senior practitioner suffered from in the olden days were lower back aches. <laughs> <laughs> Just leaning the, over that foropter. You bet all after, day, I, and then by, after a few years, that lower back went. Now, that's another know, I, issue. <laughs> that's, that's no longer a problem. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I did a couple of years back, I did a talk on that, you know, the ergonomics of uh, new technologies. And... I didn't get the first base because I had no, I had no scientific data to back it up because nobody ever related it to to the refresh. You know, I, I remember 35 years ago, some you know some guy said to me, you know, it was, I, either optometrist or ophthalmologist said to me, said, "Boy, you walk with a real refractor slump." <laughs> <laughs> and and I you know I called him a son of a no no yeah. I, 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 I said, what are you talking about? He said, everybody who refracts always walks slumped over. <laughs> you know, I, I used to have to keep a, a chiropractor on retainer to straighten right, me out exactly. until they got too fancy and they wanted to start doing x-rays and stuff. All I wanted to do was crack my back so I could work for right, the day. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. And if you had gone to a psychologist, they would have said, they would have said, you know, get, get some new equipment, man. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Well, Lou, it looks like we're actually running running out of time. Do you have any sort of parting words for us? Well, I think I think I said one of the things that a lot of people really don't say on this whole discussion, and that is uh, that you know you are not when you get into this when you get into this new technology game, you're not buying hardware. You know, you're really buying a relationship, and. That's why, you know, and please don't interpret this, neither you nor any of the listeners, please don't interpret this as a, as a sales pitch. But choose your company carefully. Make sure, make sure that company is going to be by your side going forward with this thing. Because everything Paul asked a moment ago about, uh, you know, about intimidation of the practitioner and can they get comfortable with it, you ain't going to get comfortable with this stuff without a friend, without a friend that knows the, that knows the, you know, the territory and knows how to hold your hand through the learning process and then knows how to, you know, especially going forward. And, and this is where I pride myself in my relationship with, uh, you know, with Marco, not necessarily going out and pitching their technologies as much as working with their reps and trying to keep them up to date on what the new sciences are showing us and, you know, positive and negative, I might add. So I think the relationship that you create with new technologies is as important as the new technology itself. Great. Well, Lou, thanks so much. This has been a really informative hour. And I think uh, this show is actually going to be posted up on ODWire. And if there are any follow-up questions that our members have, perhaps we can keep the dialogue going there. Okay, thanks so Great. much, Lou. It's a pleasure having to spend Thank the hour you. with you. Thank you guys very much. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I, I thank you for inviting me.